I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 6 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. We're going to read this passage together. 2 Samuel, while you're turning there, let me just uh, repeat, uh, uh, Scott offered several thanks, and I would like to as well this week. It was a wonderful week of people in our congregation serving in uh, behind-the-scenes, very careful and thoughtful ways. Uh, many of them are related to uh, the service that we had yesterday for uh, Bill Hershey. Um, uh, Celia did a, a tremendous amount of work, and Joel Hess was here yesterday plowing early, so the lot was feel, uh, cleared, and the Hensons worked extra uh, to make sure the building was prepared. Uh, and uh, just so, so many people, you name names, you get into trouble. I'm going to keep going, though. Um, Nate and uh, uh, Corey Holton, it's good to see the Holtons here this morning. Nate and Corey Holton came Wednesday. They had to set up tables, and they set up lots of tables so that we could use them on Friday, Saturday, and even today. The fellowship committee served today. Ed and Debbie Hare and Carol Henson and Jenna Rhodes helped with the luncheon yesterday. Just so many people. This long list. Uh, Judy Landis played yesterday. Pastor Scott ran the sound system. It's this long list of people in our church using their gifts to serve and encourage. And I, I, I give thanks to God for you, and I'm appreciative of those who... Uh, served and serve in so many ways. Now, Second Samuel 6. Let's read this, shall we? David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled and the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah, which means uh, break out against Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went up to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael daughter of Saul, watched from a window. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. 
They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people of the name in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would do. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord, the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified by this than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. This is one of the most disturbing texts in all of Scripture. Uh, And I have two questions about it. Maybe they're the same questions that you have uh, when you read it too. Here's my first one. Why did God put Uzzah to death? Why did he kill him here? Uh, Uzzah was being helpful. He was trying to keep the Ark of the Covenant, this sacred box, from hitting the ground. And for touching the box, God struck him dead. I have questions about that. And to make matters worse... At the end of of this chapter, the text tells us that Michael, David's wife, was unable to have children. She was barren. And the implication is that in this case, this barrenness is some sort of judgment from, from God for the attitude that she took toward her husband. What kind of cruel God is this? who kills someone for trying to keep the sacred box from hitting the ground and who makes a, barren, a woman barren for having a bad attitude? Here's my second question. Based on that, based on what we observe in this text, why, after David sees this, sees what God did to Uzzah, why would he want anything to do with this God? Why why would he want to bring this ark into his own home? Why, verse 12 says, would he rejoice over this? This seems like the sort of God you would want to avoid, that you'd want to stay away from, that you would not want to, to worship. And here David is with rejoicing, bringing the ark into his city. Now, how, why, how can that be? I want to address these questions this morning, and I want to frame them. I want, I want to suggest to you that this text says a lot about our problems with estimation. In particular, we underestimate. We underestimate both God's holiness and God's mercy. The reason that you're struggling with this text is because you, and I do this too, we underestimate God's holiness and we underestimate God's mercy. God is holier and God is more merciful than we're inclined to believe. And those are the two headings that I want to use to walk through this text. All right, so let's start here with God's holiness. First of all, we're going to talk about the perils of understanding God's holiness. The peril of uh, uh, underestimating, underestimating God's holiness. Now, if you struggle with what happened to Uzzah in this story, you should understand that David struggled with that too. You're in good company. If, if, it, if it troubles you, did you see in verse 8 that David is angry over this too? You're not alone in struggling with this. Actually, the words are the same. David is angry in verse 8. God is angry in verse 7. It's the same word. So 
God is angry at Uzzah. David is angry at God. I want to show you from the Bible, though. So, so again, if, if you struggle with this, David struggled with it, too. I want to show you from the Bible this morning, though, that Uzzah received perfect justice. Uh, it's a justice that he should have anticipated, that he should have seen, that he should have known about. Uh, and, and this is, he, he broke God's rules and he received the punishment that the Bible says he would receive. I'm going to show that to you in the text. Let's uh, put together though some of the basic facts of the story. Let's remember this box here that we're talking about, this ark or this box. It's the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is a box that was made of acacia wood. It was made by Moses at God's command. It's two and a half cubits uh, uh, long and one and a half cubits high and, and wide. It's, uh, well, it's about three and three quarter feet long and two and a half feet wide and two and a half feet tall. It's a rectangle. It was uh, made of acacia wood. It was overlaid with gold. And on the top of it, on the cover, of course, were these carved gold, uh, well, probably molded gold uh, figurines of cherubim, angels with their wings folded like this. And uh, the, the text tells us that this inside, actually this text doesn't, the Bible tells us that inside the Ark of the Covenant were the original copy of the Ten Commandments, uh, well, the second copy of the Ten Commandments that, was, that, that uh, defined God's covenant relationship with his people. So this is the, the, the most important document of their national life is in this box. Uh, the National Archives in Washington, D.C., some of you have been, them, been there. You, you go and see at the National Archives what's there. The Constitution is on display. The Declaration of Independence is on display. The Constitution, of course, is that agreement, that covenant that the people have made with each other about what kind of government we're going to form. And, and those are our central documents. Well, the Ark of the Covenant held Israel's central <coughs> documents. And the Ark was the most important symbol of the people's relationship with God. It was the symbol of His presence with them. In fact, verse 2 tells us that He is enthroned between the cherubim on the Ark. So they had this image that this box that they carried around was God's throne. God sat there and He ruled the people as their king. So that's what this box is. Now, we have been in Samuel for a long time. We're uh, in the actually the 37th chapter of this two-volume work, First and Second Samuel. And the ark plays a significant role at the beginning of the book, too. Did you remember several weeks ago, oh, it's been months, several months ago when we started Samuel, uh, the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. They had a war with Israel. They captured the Ark of the Covenant, and it was disastrous to them. They put the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of their god Dagon, and Dagon fell over in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Do you remember those scenes? And then every city where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, people would break out with these terrible boils, terrible tumors on their bodies. So they got rid of the Ark. They did not want the Ark. It's dangerous to them. And then the Ark, the Bible tells us, went back to Israel and it went to a town called Beth Shemesh. The people in Beth Shemesh were very happy to welcome the Ark back, but 70 men of Beth Shemesh looked inside the Ark and God struck them dead. And then they sent the ark to a man named Abinadab, and Abinadab kept the ark for 20 years. And now here the ark is on the move again. Now this is a story of how David moved the ark from Abinadab's house to Jerusalem. And there are two reasons why he wanted to move the ark. Why did he want to move the ark? 
Well, first, why he wanted to move the ark to keep it out of the hands of the Philistines. So he wants to move the ark to a more secure location to keep it out of the hands of the Philistines. Do you remember in chapter 5, David and the Israelites had defeated the Philistines in battle and had captured their gods? And David would think, was thinking to himself, maybe the Philistines want to recapture the ark. Maybe they're going to come after our, the symbol of our gods since we captured theirs. So he's going to move it from Abinadab's house, which is not very secure, into the city of Jerusalem. He wants to keep it out of the Philistines' hands. That's probably why he got 30,000 troops. That's a lot, of, a lot of people to move one box. But they're trying to protect it from the Philistines. Now, second low, secondly, though, David wants to move the ark because he wants to enjoy God's presence. He wants to enjoy having, being in God's presence. David has just cap- captured the city of Jerusalem. He's going to make it his home. Uh, he wants Jerusalem to be the center of worship and the center of the national government. He wants to be with God. There's several references to this in the book of Psalms. Look at Psalm 26.8. It says, Lord, I love the house where you live, the place where your glory dwells. Or Psalm 27.4. It says, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and see Him in His temple. Remember there was a scene back in 1 Samuel where Saul was chasing David and David was running in the wilderness and, and David confronted Saul once and he said, you know what's happening? Uh, people, verse 26, 19, uh, People have driven me today from my share in the Lord's inheritance and have said, go serve other gods. But David does not want to be in the presence of other gods. He wants to be in the presence of Yahweh, God, the God of the Israelites. So he moves the ark. There's a problem, though. Problem in the text. David uh, doesn't move the ark the way that God had said to move the ark. There are very specific instructions in the book of Numbers about how the ark was to be moved. I I wrote down there for the passage from Numbers 4, starting in verse 15. So uh, basically what this text, we're going to read it, it says the ark is to be carried, not carted, and it is to never be touched. Look what Numbers 4.15 says. After Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy furnishings and all the holy articles, and when the camp is ready to move, only then are the Kohathites to come and do the carrying. But they must not touch the holy things or they will die. The Kohathites are to carry those things that are in the tent of meeting. All right, let's explain how this works. So they had the tabernacle, of course, that tent that they had built that was God's tent. Everybody had a tent in the nation of Israel, and God had a tent too. And in God's tent, the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And the priests, here represented by Aaron and his sons, before they moved their tents, the priests were supposed to go into that holy chamber where the Ark was, and they're supposed to cover everything. And then this group of people, the Kohathites, they were relatives of Aaron's, this uh, family, the Kohathites are then to go in and pick the things up and carry them. Now, uh, look what, let's keep going here. Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, is to have charge of the oil for the light, the fragrant incense, the regular grain offering, and the anointing oil. He is to be in charge of the entire tabernacle and everything in it, including its holy furnishings and articles. Now, here we go. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, See that the Kohathite tribal clans are not destroyed from among the Levites. Don't let them kill themselves by touching the holy things. 
Here's how to do it. Remember, so that they may live and not die when they come near the most holy things, do this for them. Aaron and his sons are to go into the sanctuary and assign each man his work and what he is to carry. But the Kohathites must not go in to look at the holy things, even for a moment, or they will die. So it's not like Moses goes to the Kohathites and says, Hey, boys, it's moving day. Head on in and get stuff. And, and then somebody walks in and says, Larry, you get that, and Bob, you get that, and I'll carry this. This is not the way it's to happen. The priests are to very carefully cover and prepare everything for moving. And the Ark of the Covenant, of course, had embedded in, the, in it rings. And they were to take long poles and stick them through the rings, and you carry the Ark of the Covenant with the poles. You don't touch the Ark of the Covenant. And it's very clear here what happens if you do. If you do, you will die. It has to be carried, not, not touched. What did David do? Uh, David got a new cart, which is nice. It still had that new cart smell. Okay? But it's not what they were supposed to do. So now you can understand, I think, at least intellectually, why Uzzah died. Right? Uh, the Bible's clear. They had been warned. Don't touch the ark. Here's perfect and clear justice. He broke the rules. He suffered the stated consequences. So he didn't experience mercy. Uzzah did not experience mercy. Uzzah did not experience injustice either. He experienced justice. Now you can understand that. You can probably put the pieces together and say, oh yeah, as I should have understood. But I, you probably still have objections, don't you? I mean, what, why did he have to die for this? Uh, the punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime, does it? Uzza is being helpful here. He's keeping the ark from falling to the ground. So why does God kill him? Does that make you angry a little bit? It made David angry a little bit. It seems almost blasphemous to suggest, but are, are you tempted to think maybe that God is being a bit peevish here in the text? Like, like God is sitting in the back seat of the Pontiac station wagon I grew up riding in? So when we would go places in the back of my family's Pontiac station wagon, each of us had our assigned seats. We didn't have car seats. We lived dangerously back then. And, and, but we had seats. And the seats uh, had seams in it, and the seams uh, were very careful. The seams very carefully delineated the boundaries of our space in the back seat. Uh, the rule was you were not supposed to cross into someone else's territory, but it was so tempting. I would sit there, and my fingers would just start to move just a little bit, and they'd crawl towards that seam in the back seat, just crawl very slowly. And when the tips of my fingers had crossed that line in the seam into someone else's territory, inevitably the announcement came from the back seat, Mom, Joel is on my side of the seat! Right? That's exactly the reaction that I wanted to get. It worked every single time. Right? Is, is God peevish here? Is he saying, don't touch my side of the seat? Is that what he's doing? I, I think the answers that we have to the, the questions about this text actually will help us with all of the concerns that we have about God's sudden absolute justice. This is one story about one man in the Old Testament who broke God's rules and he suffered for it. The Bible is filled with stories like this. 
This, is, this one is stark. This one is sudden. But for thousands of years, human beings have read stories like this and said, that's not really fair. Or, why is God so severe? Let's put the, let's put the trouble, this dilemma, in stark New Testament terms, shall we? So the God we worship, whose grace we have already sung about, whose mercy that we praise, is someday going to consign unrepentant sinners to a place of fiery torment. He will declare them guilty of breaking His laws, which as Creator He has every right to make and enforce. Laws that are in this book and that He's written on the hearts of every human being. And for their guilt, God is going to sentence sinners to eternal, agonizing punishment. It will never stop. It will never ease. And while he's pouring out his wrath on them, he will be at the same time upholding their existence. That is, they will exist only because he is sustaining their lives and their only experience will be of his unrelenting wrath. That makes what happens to us here in this passage seem small by comparison. Your objection to that reality uh, uh, which Jesus himself taught And this story, I think, has some common roots. The common roots are underestimating God's holiness and underestimating human sin. Failing to appreciate the vast difference between who God is and who we are. Maybe an illustration will help at this point here. I was talking to Dan Houck about this passage recently. Dan asks, Good questions. My answers are never as good as Dan's questions. So Dan said, isn't this just a natural reaction? You know, if you see somebody carrying something and they stumble a little bit, don't you just reach out to help them? Isn't Uzzah just being helpful and nice, careful here? Wouldn't you do that? Yes, yes. But what happens if you're carrying a set of knives? My wife just brought a new kitchen knife. She bought this based on her... Uh, experience in France working with a French chef. All of our knives are dull, so she has a new knife. It is the most expensive piece of cutlery we have ever owned. There's strict rules in our house about who can touch the knife. I didn't make the list. (laughs) You could almost say I didn't make the cut. Mm, Yes. So, if my wife is carrying the knife and she drops it, I am not going to reach out to grab it. In fact, I'm going to jump back because I don't want it to go through my foot either. Or or what if you're holding a torch? I don't know why you would be, but let's imagine you have a torch in your hand. And you're walking along and and you fall, you you, you trip and and the torch comes out of your hand. You're, You're not going to reach out and grab it. Because you know, you know enough about knives and you know enough about fire not to reach out and grab it. But you jump back because you don't want it to fall on you. The Ark of the Covenant is a box symbolizing in the highest degree possible the holy presence of God. And Uzzah dared to reach out with his unholy hands to touch it. The issue here is not hot fire to tender flesh. The issue is holy God and guilty flesh. Listen to what R.C. Sproul said about this in his book, The Holiness of God. 
Uzzah stretched out his hand and placed it squarely on the ark, steadying it in place lest it fall to the ground. An act of holy heroism? No. It was an act of arrogance, a sign of presumption. Uzzah assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth. That's a great sentence. I'm going to read that again. Uzzah assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth, but it wasn't the ground or the mud that would desecrate the ark. It was the touch of man. The earth, after all, is an obedient creature. It does what God tells it to do. It brings forth its yield in its season. It obeys the laws of nature that God has established. When the temperature falls to a certain point, the ground freezes. When water is added to the dust, it becomes mud, just as God designed it. The ground does not commit cosmic treason. There's nothing polluted about the ground. God did not want His holy throne touched by that which was contaminated by evil, that which was in rebellion to Him, that which by its ungodly revolt had brought the whole creation to ruin and caused the ground and the sky and the waters of the sea to groan together and travail, waiting for the day of redemption. Man, human beings. It was man's touch that was forbidden. Uzzah was not an innocent man. He was not punished without a warning. He was not punished without violating a law. There was no caprice in this act of divine judgment. There was nothing arbitrary or whimsical about what God did in that moment. But there was something unusual about it. The suddenness of the execution and the finality of it takes us by surprise and at once shocks and offends That shock and that offense comes because we have underestimated God's holiness and we have underestimated human sin. J.C. Ryle said, Nothing, I am convinced, will astonish us so much when we awake in the resurrection day as the view we shall have of sin. It's an interesting line. We think a lot when, 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 we, when followers of Christ die. Bill Hershey opens his eyes in heaven and sees the Lord Jesus and how awesome that's going to be. Open our eyes to see the Lord Jesus and we will understand our sin in a whole new light. A.W. Tozer said this in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. Neither the writer, me, he says, nor the reader of these words is qualified to appreciate the holiness of God. Quite literally, a new channel must be cut through the desert of our minds to allow the sweet waters of truth that will heal our great sickness to flow in. We cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. Holy is the way God is. To be holy, He does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. And verse 9 tells us that David is afraid. David was afraid of the Lord that day. Like in the passage in Luke chapter 5 that Jeff read, Peter falls to his knees, says, Away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. David is afraid. Who, who can stand before this holy God? Who, who can stand in his presence? And the text tells us something else, too, that is disturbing. Your sincerity is not enough for you to make it possible for you to stand in God's presence. 
I mention that because this is the basic assumption that most people have, right? That if they're sincere, that if what they believe they're sincere about, that God will grade it on a curve and he'll understand. And if you try hard and are sincere and really believe it, then, then you'll be okay. That's, that's actually not what this passage teaches in fact, it teaches the opposite. Look what David did when he was moving the ark the first time. He assembled to protect the ark 30,000 soldiers. To transport it, he had a new cart. To accompany the, the trip, he hired an orchestra. There was music and dancing and singing. He even had castanets. Castanets! Does anybody here doubt that David was sincere? Anybody doubt here that, that David tried or that he was doing what he thought was best. But your sincerity and your effort is not enough to bridge the gap between God's holiness and human sin. Uzzah got justice. The punishment fit the crime. Even well-intentioned Uzzah was not good enough for this sort of contact with the holy God. So now what happens? The ark gets stored away again. The first time they were afraid of it, they put it in Abinadab's house. Now they're trying to move it from Abinadab's house and, and they, they put it in this home of a man named Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And what Obed-Edom experiences is not justice. Obed-Edom experiences not wrath. Actually, Obed-Edom experiences kindness and blessing, which is actually what David wants. That's why he moved the ark in the first place. We should come and talk about the second heading here. We've talked about underestimating God's holiness. Let's talk about, secondly, underestimating God's mercy. Underestimating God's mercy. You would be mistaken if you stop here in this reading of this passage and understand that the only thing that God is is angry. You would be mistaken if that's the only thing that you think that God is. The reason I know that is because when he ends up, when, when the Ark of the Covenant moves into Obed-Edom's house, he blesses his entire household. So much so that, that for three months, in three months, it's obvious that God is blessing this man. See, God is the one who's, it, it was his idea for them to build the ark. It was his idea for them to move in with his people because God takes delight in his people. He, he is thrilled to be there with him, uh, to be there with them. He, he delights in showing mercy and, and showing kindness to his people. How, now, how do I know this? Uh, there's a wonderful verse in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, it says, we are God's workmanship. Uh, a couple of years ago, Kathy and I went downtown to Lancaster, the convention center, to the American Quilting Society quilt show. And we looked at all the quilts and the machines, and, and uh, it, it, was, it was a fine day. Those quilters, these men and women who work with this fabric as their art, they, they start with batting, and they start with fabric, and they start with thread, and they start with needles, and they come up with these just amazing designs. It's just beautiful works of art. And then when the time comes for the quilt show, they bring them down and they hang them up. Actually, professionals in white gloves come, and they hang them up for all to see because this is workmanship that these Quilters have put on display. And you know, they hang them there with a great sense of pride, don't they? Look, look what I made. This is beautiful. I love this thing that I made. That's why I want everybody to see this thing that I made. 
God here is building the nation of Israel. He started with Abraham and and worked through his son and his grandson and then his great-grandsons and and he he rescued them from Egypt and he gave them the law and now he's he's forming a nation and he's got King David and, and, and God is there. This is my workmanship. This is my people that I am in the process of building and I delight to be with them. And I, I do like to show them mercy and kindness. Oh, it is difficult for us to comprehend the delight that the Lord Jesus has in his people. But, but the delight is there because the Bible tells us that we are Christ's bride. He's the groom. His people are the bride. I've done a lot of weddings. I've, I've been happy to do a lot of weddings. At those weddings I have come to, been at, I have never yet seen a glum groom they're all happy. Sometimes the brides aren't happy. Things don't work out the way they want. But the guys, they don't care. They get the girl. That's what they're there for. <laughs> right? They're just happy. They take delight in blessing with them and being with their people. And God shows this mercy to Obed-Edom. Now let's return to the, let's talk about the text here. David makes plans to move the ark again, and there's a different sort of preparation that he makes. Verse 13 uh, talks about the well. Uh, in verse 13, he, he talks about the sacrifices that they made. Some people think, based on the text, that they every six steps that they took, David would offer a sacrifice. I don't think that's quite true. It's a ten-mile walk from the house of Obed-Edom to Jerusalem, they would still be doing it if they were, had to offer a sacrifice every six feet. But probably they took six steps and then he sacrificed the offering because the, we're good, we're off to a good start. Well, notice they're carrying it, carrying the ark this time. And then uh, later here it mentions the fact that, that David, verse 17, had prepared a tent for it to be. David's preparing differently. David, someday, we're going to talk about this actually next week, Lord willing. David wants to build a temple for this ark, but for now he's got a tent ready. He's prepared. And then verse, verse 14 talks about the linen ephod that David had that he was dancing before the Lord with. Uh, kind of a, a breastplate, a, an apron sort of thing, this ephod that David had. What's interesting about this is that in the Old Testament, the only people who wear ephods, linen ephods, are priests. But David's a king, he's not a priest, so how, how is this working out? Well, there's an interesting connection. One of the threads that's all the way through the Bible starts in the book of Genesis, it culminates in the book of Hebrews, but follow me here for just a minute. Back in the book of Genesis, there's a character who comes on the scene, his name is Melchizedek. And he was a king, he was a king of Salem, or the city of Jerusalem. He was the king of this city, and he was a priest of the Most High God. Highly unusual that you would have a king priest, but Melchizedek was that king priest, and Melchizedek blessed Abraham. That is, Melchizedek was superior to Abraham. David here in this passage has conquered Jerusalem. He has taken Melchizedek's place, and the, the idea is here that David, having taken Melchizedek's place, is now a king priest. And the book of Hebrews is going to pick this up in the New Testament and it's going to say Jesus, David's great-great-great-great-grandson, is the king priest that we need. Well, that's just his hint here in this, this text. 
This move here in this passage, the second move, is, is marked by joy. Shouts, trumpets, dancing, sacrifices, generosity. The trumpets make, might make you think of coronation. They're bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the city. Woohoo! God is here. Yahweh King is coming into His city. Now, how can that be? How can that be that they would be rejoicing in the, after Uzzah has been put to death? How can that be? The Bible teaches us here that it is possible for sinful people to enjoy all of the benefits of God's presence. That's what David is celebrating. We can enjoy all of the benefits of God's presence provided that sinful people come to God on God's terms. That's the way he said to come. You don't come to God on your own terms. You come on God's terms. Even if you're sincere, you can't come on your own terms. But it is possible, Obed-Edom showed it is, to enjoy God's presence, to receive mercy from Him, but you have to come on God's terms. The Ark of the Covenant itself is the, the symbol of the fact that God has provided a way for us to come, for the Israelites to come. Once a year, the high priest entered this holy place with blood and he poured it on the, the seat, the top, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant and it covered the sins of the people and it made it possible for God to dwell with His people. And David is bringing this ark in with reverent fear. There's joy there, not because us is dead, but because God has made a way for us to enter his presence. The Bible tells us in the New Testament that the ark is gone. The ark is gone. It's not in a warehouse somewhere by the government. I know you know that, but just to say that. The ark is gone, but God's new way, his living way has come. The way to God is through His Son, the Lord Jesus. One of His disciples asked Him about this one day. They said, where are you going? We don't know how to get there. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. It's by His blood that our guilt is covered. This passage ends with a warning. There's another death here at the end of this passage. It's a slightly different form. Uzzah underestimated God's holiness and dies. Michael here underestimates God's mercy. The text tells us she looked at David and she, she despised him. She thought he was vulgar. This display of gratitude to God for his mercy is too lavish. It's too much. It's too undignified. And, and she suffers a death herself. The death of her family. The death of her womb. To underestimate God's holiness and to underestimate God's mercy may both end in death. On the one hand, if you underestimate God's holiness, you will not fear Him until it is too late. If you underestimate His mercy, you will not cry out to Him. And the end is the same, death. We're going to pray, we're going to sing, and then we're going to come to the table this morning to remember His mercy. Holy God has made a way for us sinful beings to come to Him through the Lord Jesus. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before You through the Lord Jesus because that is the only way that we can come.
we are no better off than Uzzah in our holiness. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We all have turned from you. We uh, stand guilty before you, but we come in the Lord Jesus and through the Lord Jesus to receive your mercy, which is vast, abundant, and free. Oh Lord, as, as we contemplate this terrible passage, Father, we pray that you would teach us to fear you aright. And would you, would you correct us in how we think poorly of your great holiness and how we minimize our own guilt before you? Thank you for the Lord Jesus who is the way. Thank you that we can celebrate and remember his death and resurrection by partaking of these elements uh, together. Bless us, we pray today in Christ's name. Amen.